And we started to see the inequities within our industry. And it was out there for all the world to see in a time where we could not smoke and mirror it because there was nowhere to go. It was a standstill and it put a spotlight on this community. And what it revealed was what the inequities were, but it also revealed people's inability to know how to move these ideas, these protocols, these uh, initiatives forward. There was a kind of fragility around what to do. This week's guest is Michael McElroy, an actor, singer, musical director, an educator and founder of the Tony Award-winning Broadway Inspirational Voices, the multiracial gospel choir united in the mission to change lives through the power of music and service. In the shorter than normal interview, Michael explains how as a child, being immersed in the fusion of gospel music, musical theatre and R&B developed his love and appreciation of music. He also discusses how his grandmother instilled in him a lifelong commitment to service and giving back. Although acutely aware of racism, Michael felt insulated by being surrounded by black excellence, which helped him develop a personal sense of limitless possibilities for anything if he was prepared to invest the work. Michael discusses his journey through education, developing his sense of identity and how he resolved to overcome the barriers he encountered to reinforce his self-belief and conviction to succeed. We discuss how serendipity played a pivotal part in landing his first Broadway role in Miss Saigon. Michael explains what led him to create the social impact organisation Broadway Inspirational Voices to create an impact and welcoming space that has evolved over 25 years to become a platform where artists change lives through the power of music. Michael also discusses how he and fellow artists responded to the pandemic's lockdown and the murders of George Floyd and other victims of race crimes by creating virtual outreach programmes for Broadway Inspirational Voices and the NGO Covenant House. Michael describes how Broadway is responding to the last 18 months, addressing its institutional inequities to become more inclusive, diverse and accessible by embracing the New Deal proposed through Musicians United for Social Equity and Black Theatre United. Finally, Michael explains the steps he is taking to empower faculty and students in diversity, equity and inclusion and to create systemic change through his new role as chair at the University of Michigan's Department of Musical Theatre. This episode is proof in the power of possibility when hard work is aligned with the right mindset. And finally, thanks to Tom Kitt for the great connection. Michael, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, wonderful. I'm sitting here in a sunny September day in New York, and I believe you are in Michigan. In Arbor, Michigan, yes. Yeah. And what takes you to Michigan from New York? I accepted a position as the chair of the Department of Musical Theatre at the University of Michigan. And so I started here uh, in the fall, in September. Wonderful. We'll come on and talk, certainly cover that. We always start with our guest's life journey and uh, your um, journey through acting, musical theatre, and the, in particular, the extraordinary work that you've been doing over the last sort of, 25 years in New York, transforming people's lives really through art. Rather, before we get into that, can we talk about your childhood and particularly your education? From what I've read and what I've heard, I believe you were born in that part of the world where you are, sort of similar to where you are now, uh, Shaker Heights, I believe. Yep. Yeah. And to a mother, I heard you describe uh, with a love of musical theatre and a stepfather who was a minister and a grandfather who actually started a church. Yes. So I'd love you just to reflect on your early memories of music um, growing up and the impact that they had on you and your worldview. I grew up in a house that was full of music. My grandmother, actually, who was a major force in my life, taught herself to play the piano, self-taught, and then played at my church as I was in my grandfather's church when I was growing up. And when my mom was born, she put her in piano lessons. So by age of three, my mom was already playing. 
And even to this day, my mom's 81. She still plays every Sunday. Um, so she was putting piano lessons, learning classical music, but also playing at church. So there was always this mixture in my house of different musical genres. Um, my mom still plays her classical. She just did a concert at church last year where she played all of her classical stuff and then went into her hymns and she plays the organ and then went into the gospel wow. and did all of these things. So growing up, my mom played, my grandmother played, my uncle my sister, my brother, and I were the musicians at my church. And so I grew up with this... She put you to good use. Yeah, with this great (laughs) foundation of gospel music. But then my uncle was a musical director. And so he would come to town over the summers and live with us and musical direct local musicals in in our, our town. And so I grew up, my mom loved musical theater, so she would always go see shows and bring me back cast albums and and play bills. And my uncle would take me to rehearsals. And I also grew up at a time where the arts were, they were an integral part of artist, of education for elementary, junior, high, and high school kids. So I grew up in the 70s where we would go downtown and see the national tours of shows as a part of a field trip. Or we would go to the symphony, Cleveland Symphony um, at Severance Hall, or we would go to the museums. So I grew up where art was important, the arts. And I was exposed between gospel music and musical theater, then also the music of the day. My mom, I remember my mom and my father before he passed away, would have these like card parties where they would set up tables in the basement and all these fabulous looking black folks would come over in their dashikis and their afros and their jewelry. And they would sit at these different tables and play cards. Mm. And then the music, the record player would be going. So I was introduced to the Temptations and Diana Ross and Teddy Pendergrass and all of this music that was the R&B sound of that, of that era. So I grew up surrounded by music all the time and a real appreciation for all types of music. And that was really, it influenced me to love all kinds. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that was my, my formative years. Did you have early ambitions to um, work in music or to act? And when did that first, uh, those first thoughts emerge? My first national tour that uh, my, in fourth grade, we went to see downtown at the Cannon Theater was the moment that changed everything for me. It was the national tour of Porgy and Bess. And I tell this story all the time, but it was sitting there. I was a really hyper kid. But for some reason, when I went to the theater and those lights went down, I was mesmerized. And seeing people who looked like me on stage doing something at that level of excellence uh, was the moment I can really go back to and remember in my mind, in my memory, that was the moment that I said, I could do that. Because I think it is absolutely essential that we see a reflection of ourselves in any aspect which allows us to dream Mm -hmm. and to uh, have a vision of ourselves actually doing that thing. And that moment was very clear for me because those uh, Black folk performers up there doing that genre of music and doing it so beautifully and so brilliantly was the moment that made me know I could do it. And did you get support from your grandmother and mother and your family at that stage or do you keep it very much to yourself oh no there there was um you know because i was singing in church and playing piano in church and my mom loved theater so we would go see national tours or we would go to cleveland playhouse to see shows or to the um to caramu which is the african-american theater in downtown cleveland there was always a support but there was never really a this is what i'm going to do with my life until i had to prepare to start looking at colleges Mm -hmm. and that's when i made that decision 
I've heard you talk about your the importance of your grandmother and mm. instilling you um, values of service and giving back, and by growing up in a melting pot of politics and art and and service, was that pivotal in creating your own personal worldview, or were there other influences other oh, than your grandmother? Huge. That was huge. I said in my opening uh, uh, speech to Mr. Podmeek when I arrived. I talked about growing up in the church where you were the first family, meaning my grandfather was the minister, then my stepfather took over. So I was always in the spotlight in terms of I was expected to give of my time, give of my talent to the church or to the community. And, you know, growing up, I mean, it was fine until probably around high school. And then I resented it because I felt like my life wasn't my own. Um, but I'm so grateful when I look back now on what my grandmother and my mom and my stepfather and my grandfather, what they instilled in me was a responsibility to community, um, a responsibility to get back. My grandmother, besides being the first lady of the church and all the duties that came with that, started our church daycare center next door that was attached to the church. She also ran the 21st Congressional District Caucus for Congressman Lewis Oaks for over 30 years. Um, so she had politics. She also was on the zoning board for the mayor. She did everything, but always at the center was service and giving back. And as I said, being slightly resentful about it in high school when you were just be, do things for yourself, I'm glad that I had that instilled in me because it is a, a central point of my work as an artist in everything that I do. Mm-hmm. You mentioned having that belief um, in your ability to... Um achieve the same sort of levels of excellence that you'd witnessed on the stage by seeing people like yourself. I understand that you, you moved schools also when you're from probably junior to senior schools between a very sort of black environment and a very white environment. How did that experience and the, sort of the differences in both the, sort of the, the culture and the attitudes and the worldview of those students impact you? And, and did it give you the, did that reinforce your sense of belief in yourself and your ability to perform at the highest of levels? That's an interesting question. Once again, I consider myself lucky that I grew up in the 70s. The 70s Mm. was a really interesting time in Cleveland where they were doing all this desegregation and busing students on the east side to the west side and vice versa. But there was also this new education program called Major Work, which meant you could test into a class starting at first grade where uh, you would test into the, depending on your scores, you would then be in a first grade class with other students doing second grade work. Uh, it was called major work and I tested in. And so for my second, third and fourth grade, part of my fourth grade year, I was in this major work program in Cleveland schools. And then we moved literally five minutes from our house in Cleveland and we were in Shaker Heights. And uh-huh. what they would do at that time in Shaker was if a student, particularly a black student, was coming from a Cleveland school into Shaker, they would put them back a grade. Because the work that they were doing in Shaker was considered so much more advanced than the work they were doing in Cleveland education programs at the time. But because I was in major work, I was able to directly into my fourth grade, halfway through my fourth grade year into Shaker schools. It had already been instilled in me because I was in major work and in these classrooms with black teachers and black students Mm. that the, and from my family and growing up in formative years, that there was never a limitation put on me. I understood what racism was. I understood what prejudice was. But I wasn't aware that it could touch me because I was surrounded by 
black excellence, people who were doing it mm-hmm. on, in arts, in education. And that, that was a major push at that time. It wasn't until I moved to Shaker that I had issues more to do with my identity than I had been meant, than to do with my education. I remember one experience, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade, or I may have been a little older than that, in junior high school, I say. And I had, in Shaker, there were different areas. It was the area I lived, which was very middle class, where, you know, a lot of Black families moving out of Cleveland were moving into this area. So it was like lots of kids, leave your door open, everybody goes in and out of each other's homes, you know, all that. But we did not live in the wealthy part of Shaker. I had friends who lived in mansions, you know, with ballrooms and theaters in their homes. And so I had a friend who lived in a very affluent area in Shaker, and I went over to visit and hang out with him. And then I was walking back. It was probably like a 45-minute walk to my neighborhood. And I was stopped by the police. I had to be 13, 14. I was literally just walking down the street. But because I, in that policeman's mind, I did not belong in that neighborhood, he just mm-hmm. stopped me and asked where I was going and then let me go. But it was, you know, I was very aware mm-hmm. of how race played out. But I also was aware that I had been prepared in a way to view who I was and what I was and what I was capable of as being limitless. Just to sort of for a little bit of context, in the 70s in Ohio and Cleveland, what was the major driver of the economy? We had our first black mayor, uh, who was Carl Stokes, who was Louis Stokes' mm-hmm. brother. And I remember my mom, there was a Cleveland school strike during that time. So it wasn't, it wasn't the most affluent, like it wasn't, the economy wasn't booming, but everybody was comfortable. You know what I mean? And there was this upwardly, upward mobile kind of mentality uh, among Black folks in that time and a real exodus from Cleveland proper into the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike Michigan, that's uh, driven by the, sort of the car industry, what was Ohio's industry? I think it was steel. Steel, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also, yeah, because I think it was the Rockefellers that started all of the, created that whole Cleveland downtown theater, which are now has been refurbished with the Ohio Theater, the State Theater, the Playhouse, the uh, Hannah Theater, and really a sit- making it a hub in the you know, early 40s, 50s, 60s as a, a artistic hub mm-hmm. um, there. But I think it was steel. And after the, you describing this of being stopped by the police and uh, having a sense that the racism sort of couldn't really touch you, did you, were you, was, was the integration into the sort of predominantly white school fairly straightforward or did you encounter any sort of uh, issues as you progressed through that school? The interesting thing was at that time, and Shaker was very comfortable and mm. 70s were a great, a great time for Shaker Heights. Um, and um, they had eight, I think it was eight elementary schools in a, in a, ta- in a suburb that maybe had like 150,000, 200,000 people, but there were eight uh, elementary schools, then two junior high schools, and then one high school. Uh-huh. And the, the elementary school I went to was in my neighborhood, so it was predominantly African-American. So I'd say 80 to 90% of the class, the students in the class were African-American mm-hmm. and the rest were uh, white or Asian. And most of our teachers uh, were white. And then when I moved into junior high school, once again, I tested into uh, advanced placement meaning that I was in the classes taking the advanced placement history, English, math, science. And I stayed in that trajectory all the way through high school. And what I realized was, once I got to high school, was that if you had not tested in, it was very hard for a student of color to test into that space once they Mm -hmm. 
But white students, let's say if you got an A in English and you're African-American and you were in just the regular leveled courses, their counselors would rarely encourage you to move into advanced placement. But if you got an A and you were white students, then they would move you. So I basically traveled from junior high school and then when we converged into high school with the same group of students because we were all together in those advanced placement courses. I rarely did so the same African-American students that I knew from uh, junior high school, and then the ones that came in when we came together in high school were the same. Um, mm-hmm. And rarely did an African-American student test into and move into advanced placement. So I was aware of the shifts. I was aware of how bias played out. But it was still an idyllic kind of time, and it didn't touch me as much as me just having an awareness of it. Talk to me about your work ethic and your cu- level of curiosity as a child. Mm-hmm. I'd love to get your perspective of whether it was um, nurtured by your family or if it's just innate in you. And if you saw school as something, I have to excel here. Mm. I have to prove myself. It's interesting. Um, that when I look back, my ninth grade year, I almost failed my ninth grade year, not because I couldn't do the work, because I wasn't going to school. I was doing a show. And my mom was a school teacher. She would leave for work, and then I would just go downstairs and not go to school. And she caught me one day. And I mean, it was like, then it was because I had almost flunked out and I was all these advanced placement courses. Mm-hmm. That's when I realized, oh crap, this ninth grade is a, is a part of my 10th, 11th, 12th grade in my college. I better get it together. So I barely scraped by in ninth grade. But then from then on, I had a mission. And so 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, I was in my AP courses, getting those A's and B's, just trying to make sure that my overall GPA would not prohibited me from getting to, from moving forward. You know, I was surrounded by achievers. My mom, my sister, big influence my grandmother. Um, and because my grandmother was in politics, I was always around famous people, political figures. And so there was always this level of excellence around me and this idea of being able to achieve anything you work hard at. And I think part of it was just me as a person. And part of it was just what I was exposed to. Aside from those family members you mentioned, were there any other defining sort of mentors? Oh, yes. Or people that drove you? Um, my elementary school music teacher, Mrs. Kirkpatrick, who really saw something in me and really nurtured that. My junior high school choir director, Mr. Moss. And then in high school, my high school choral director, Mr. Everson. And the theater teachers, um, Mr. Thornton and Mr. Cardinal. And going back, my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Rose, who was really tough on me. In fact, I just had a conversation with her three months ago. She called me. I haven't talked to her since I literally graduated from elementary school. And she was tough on me. And uh, so there were teachers who recognized something in me and made the conscious decision to nurture and to give me opportunities and to challenge me and really invest in me. Uh, and that was incredibly important and really pivotal moments. Big influence in, in you when you talk about your grandmother and about being nurtured and being mentored by teachers like you just discussed. The, uh, the, the life you led and what you were exposed to, it feels like you could have gone in many directions other mm-hmm. than music, whether it could have been politics, it could have been a life of service, but you chose to focus on musical theatre and you landed at Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. Was there any moment where you were deciding, mm, should I, shouldn't, should I do philosophy, political science and philosophy, or was it always, no, it's musical theatre? 
Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> saw, I saw politics and I was like, there was never a desire to go with that. I mean, the arts just literally were just, it was my heart, right? So mm-hmm. there was a moment where I went, do I want to go into singing as a profession or do I want to do theater, musical theater? And it just so happened at that time at my high school, they would have college counselors come college reps come and if they were there that day you had a, a list of who was there and you could get out of a class to go see this college counselor talk about that university and get information and there was a class in my ap math class where i was not exactly prepared for a test and i was like well i'm going to go to this college thing, college fair and it just so happened that day it was carnegie mellon i didn't know about carnegie mellon I had no idea about Carnegie Mellon. But when I went and sat and listened to this person talk about Carnegie Mellon and got the brochure, I was like, wait a minute. This is a musical theater, which is my acting, which is my singing. And I took the brochure home to my mom. She goes, well, here's some dates where we can visit the campus. Let's go. And so we drove the two and a half hours. The minute I walked on the campus, I hadn't even gone into class. I said, this is where I want to be. And then I went to watch classes. I watched a dance class. I watched an acting class, a musical theater class. And, but I still had to audition. So I flew to New York for the very first time by myself and auditioned for two schools. And were you? And Carnegie Mellon, I went into the old Minskoff studios of some rickety stairs and I did my dance audition. And then I went in for the head of the program and did my acting audition. And he was like, go out or hang outside in the, out in the hall. And then the assistant chair of the program came out and said, we want to accept you. So I was told at my audition. And then I was like, do I get to sing? He goes, oh, you don't have to sing. I said, no, I want to sing. That's the thing that I'm really, you know. <laughs> so I sang. And um, so I knew when I left and I had been accepted to Carnegie Mellon. And then it just became the financial aid and getting ready to go. The, ch- the challenge was moving from a space where, <laughs> for a lot of us, and I can say this now, where you are like the big fish in the small pond to mm-hmm. now being in a program with lots of big fishes. And that transition was challenging for me. When you say big fishes, you mean people just in your in the program in your same year or just seeing people that were a, a, a year ahead of you, a couple of years ahead of you and thinking they're more talented? Or did you have self-doubt at that point? Well, did you start to question your abilities? Well, I think the big issue for me was, you know, like I said, I was a church kid. I grew up in church, and but also was embraced in this artistic space. Mm. So going to college was the first time that I lived away from work for a long time. I had gone; I was an exchange student, and I lived in Germany for a little bit. But it was the first time that I was able to have my own independence and really discover who I was uh-huh. and what my identity was and what that was in relation to my faith and my beliefs. And so coming into a, a you know, one of the top conservatory training programs and trying to figure out your identity at the same time as trying to hit the marks that they wanted from you was not, didn't work for me. And at that time, it's a very different world now, but at that time, there was a real push against identity being seen in your work. And so you could literally be asked to leave based on if you could not portray whatever they wanted you to portray on stage in terms of sexuality in a way that they thought was that thing. Um, and um, so here I am grappling with, I used to be able to do this so easily. 
I'm trying to figure out who I am as a person in my gender identity. I mean, in my, my sexual identity. Yeah. And here I am in a place where of excellence, where they are saying, you have to hit this mark or you're out of here. And so my first year did not go well. And so at the end of my first year, I was actually asked not to return. But wow. the great thing was I also worked in the office as a workspace. And so I talked to people in the office and I was so terrified to tell my mom. And finally I told her and I told her what had happened. And she says, well, that's okay. We'll just get a lawyer and we'll, you know. And I called and told them that. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, I was invited back. But I had to repeat my first year. But mm. by then, I was great. And looking back, I'm so glad that happened. Because what it did was it lit a fire under me. And it made me go, you have to do this for you. Mm-hmm. You have to believe in yourself because there are going to be opportunities and situations where people are not going to believe. So I went back with a fire that was, I'm going to work. And I'm going to believe in myself and I'm going to take everything I can from these people, these faculty. I'm going to drain them of every bit of information because I know that I've got to learn something in order to go out in the world and do what I want to do. And I went to the next four years with that kind of mentality, very driven and uh, not uh, allowing anybody to tell me I couldn't do. Just just before we move on, we'll get into your career. When you talk about how different it is from today not being able to express your identity through your work was that just Carnegie Mellon or do you think that was cultural across the nation across all schools well along all conservatory conservatory and acting programs it was a different time now you know as a faculty member in artistic training programs now in my second university we embrace all the experiences Mm -hmm. now for me um we embrace and encourage all of our students to bring in who they are. And students mm-hmm. have been socialized with that kind of uh, yeah. experience now. For me, it's about, yes, bring that in. But also, as an actor, you have to be a person who transforms. And I want you to be able to go out and play any role you want to play convincingly. So I will find the material and ways to celebrate who you are. But I'll also challenge you outside of that so that you can get to figure out how to be a transformer as an actor. Um, so it is a very different talent. It was very, also, you know, most conservatory training programs like Kurdi Moon at that time would accept more students than they were able to graduate, knowing that there would be a, mm-hmm. a cut system. And um, so my class started at probably around 38, maybe 40, and we graduated 16. And now they don't do that anymore. They choose their 22, and everybody signs off on them, all the faculty sign, and then they are investing in those 22 students from freshman to senior year. So it's a very different time. Okay. Your career, I mean, you started uh, your career in 1990 and Richard III with Denzel Washington and Shakespeare in the Park and your Broadway career began with Miss Saigon. I'd love to understand about the role of serendipity in your life and where it really played a part, kicked in when you look back at it and think if it hadn't been for this situation or this encounter. There are lots of movie parts between Richard III and Miss Saigon. It's just so weird to the back with it. But at that time, I think they still do it. The public in theater, yeah, Shakespeare in the Park, in- they invest in students coming out of certain programs. And their ensembles in their shows were made up of graduates of Juilliard, NYU, MFA mm-hmm. program, SUNY Purchase, Carnegie Mellon, right? And so when we came up uh, to New York to do our presentation, our showcase, we would get like a list of who wanted to see us. And I had a, 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 an audition at Shakespeare in the Park downtown at the public. And I auditioned, 
for Richard III, and I was cast in the ensemble. And then I went back to school to graduate, but I graduated knowing that I had a job. And the thing about that is so amazing is because of my experience in Carnegie Mellon and really attempting to believe in myself and fight for myself, there was still that part of me that doubted that they, that I was, the messaging was, oh, you're just a singer. You really can't act. That was the messaging that I was battling between mm. fighting to believe in myself and those tapes of what had been done to me in my first year. So I thought when I left, I wouldn't work for 10 years. I thought I would not work. So to be the first person in my class to come out, go back to school to graduate, knowing I had a job, Shakespeare in the Park, was amazing. And then after that, I had a series of auditions for, I think it was four shows. It was a national tour of Grand Hotel, Miss Saigon, Sarafina, and there was one other one I can't remember. And I got it all the way down to the end on all of them. And they got Sarafina. And so I left in the fall and went on tour with Sarafina for like six months. Um, and then I got a play, uh, Fences, at a regional theater in Florida. I went down into that, came back, closed Sarafina tour. Then came to New York, got an off-Broadway show. Um, and that show closed on a Sunday. And that Friday before it closed, my agent called me and said, you have, a, you have an audition for Miss Saigon on Monday for a replacement. And they had only been open maybe six months. So my show closed on Sunday. I didn't know how it was going to be read. I didn't know how to be there. I went to the theater, auditioned on the Broadway stage, at the Broadway theater, came home. It was a rainy day. I was, you know, really trying to figure things out. So I'm just going to go to sleep. I'm going to just pretend everything doesn't exist and I'm going to go to sleep. When I woke up, my answering machine was beeping. And it was my agent telling me that I had gotten this unfundable role in the saga. And I started the next day. And that was because of many things. <laughs> One, the assistant director remembered me from the final callbacks and really liked my work. And so did the musical director, music conductor. And then the guy who left to do Nick and Nora <laughs> was 6'3". And so I fit his uh-huh. costumes. Uh-huh. And, and so I had my first four-way show. And uh, I remember quite clearly standing on the stage at that first show. And as the curtain went up on the curtain call going, remember this moment, you get one time for it to be your very first time. And from there, it was just, you know, moving forward from there. When did your, the impact of your grandmother's focus on service and giving back impact you and make you have the initial thought to create Broadway inspirational voices in, when you did that in 94? Was the idea, was the germ of the idea there earlier than 94? And was it impacted by that, so the influence of your grandmother to do something that had some form of sort of social impact? That's a great question. All these are great questions, Mark. Uh, yes. What happened was when I graduated from Carnegie Mellon and moved to New York, mm. I moved to New York City right at the height of the AJ. Um, and I was very sheltered from Shaker Heights, even in Pittsburgh. Didn't know anything about AIDS or HIV. None of that. We didn't know any of that. So coming to New York City and seeing people on the street one day and then a month later, 90 pounds are all gone. Mm-hmm. was something that just um, devastating. was devastating to me because yeah. I had no, it just, I just was a like, in the middle of this world. At the same time, of once again, making a transition into another stage of adulthood. Right. Mm-hmm. And Broadway Cares 
and Equity Fights AIDS were two separate organizations that were coming together at that time. And I love my theater industry. We were like, we have to do something. And that's when we started fundraising and, and doing all these things to raise money for our fellow actors and directors and choreographers who were being ravaged by this disease. And so I did a couple cabarets in 92 and 93. I don't tell mom, it's like everybody else. And then in 94, I was like, I want to do something with gospel music because I recognized that it was really my connection to something greater than myself, which was through the music, that I was able to find solace in this moment with something that was out of my control, that just defied any kind of logic, the way it was ravaging our community. And so I decided to bring together like 11 of my friends and do an evening of gospel music for, as a benefit for Broadway Cares at Queen Fatigues hoping that through this diverse group of artists that I asked to do this, that we would be able to, through this power of this amazing music, provide an emotional space, some kind of cathartic space, some place of healing, some place of community. And it surpassed my greatest expectations and then became an annual event. And so for me, my service was through the music, right? It was about a diverse group. It was about inviting in the theater community into a space that centered this music that may be centered in one religious ideology, but the music was greater than that. And the power of the music was greater than that. And I wanted it to be a place that welcomed everybody. A lot of us carry a lot of harm from spaces where we've been told we don't belong because of how we identify. And mm-hmm. so to create a space within the theater to say, come in, you're welcome here in this spiritual space, was my way to get back. And I did that, and it kept growing and growing until 1999. And then we became an LLC for a few years. And then, I think it was in 2007, we became a nonprofit so that we could continue to do more outreach work. And that outreach extended to doing work with Covenant House in New York and uh, expanding nationally. I think the last year has been devastating for everyone in the impact that COVID has had in communities across the country and across the world. Some hit worse than others, and it's exposed the, the lack of the lack of uh, the inequities that exist across this country and across cities. Particularly, new being in New York and seeing the impact on certain communities has been astoundingly bad. Um, that work must have taken on an even greater social imperative when COVID struck. How did you have the, the strength of will and the conviction to carry on when it was very easy during COVID just to lock yourself away and take cover? We were locked away. We were in absolute quarantine. And yeah. I was teaching full time from the same seat in my dining room that whole time. But for me, what I was seeing happening on our streets, what was happening with Maude Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the many different trans lives that were being taken. It just, I can't sit in a place of anger and rage. I have always turned to my art to be an expression, a place where I can put that. Now, to some success and to some things that I look back now and go, oh, I probably shouldn't have done it that way, and I deal with repercussions of that. But for BIV in that moment, it was absolutely essential that we figure out a way 
in that time to get the music out there, to do our outreach programs. It was more important than ever. That music, our mission being using music to heal, to transform, to, to bring joy to people's lives. So we started creating a format for our outreach programs. We had been with Ronald McDonald House, New York, for nine years. In the program that I started there, we, I would bring Broadway composers and they would choose a child. And then we'd match them up and they'd go hang out at the house with them. And then they'd go away and write a song about the child. And then we'd perform a concert. And so I had people like Jason Robert Brown, Sting, and Brian Yorke, Janine Tesori, Stephen Lettvac, Tom Kitt, all these amazing composers who said yes. And, uh, but now we're dealing with, you know, children who are immune compromised. We can't go in to their space. So we figured out how to do it digitally. We figured out how to do it virtually. And so all of that flipped to an online process where they met on Zoom, they hung out on Zoom, and they went away and then we created music videos. And so now instead of having a concert at the house, they created a music video that would go on all the screens and they'd have like a music release. Mm. Right? Wonderful. And so we just kept, and the same with Covenant House, we just kept figuring out how we could do it in a, in a virtual space. And again, what it allowed us to do was to expand it. So as Covenant House had always been about Covenant House New York, being in the Zoom and our virtual space, we were able to expand the program to create, to reach all these different locations all over the United States. And whereas we had to figure out how to navigate it, it actually allowed us to have a, a, a further, have more reach. And then for the choir itself, we just kept putting out music videos. <laughs> we just kept bringing it out. And then by the time we got to our, to our holiday concert, which we could not do live, we created a virtual version. Um, and I think in that year's time, we actually created easily between all our outreach programs and music videos we put out for different benefits and, and events and easily over 60, video, 60 videos in that time. And we got it to a science. We had a team. Everybody knew what they were doing. Everybody had their microphones. And it was like a science. Um, and we ended up increasing people who knew about us around the globe. I don't think that anything will ever replace the live experience. I think it's, a, it's too important, that exchange of energy. But it is nice to have this other option in order to reach a, a, a greater mm-hmm. COVID has changed everything, and it's been described by many as sort of the great accelerator. Um, particularly, yeah. you talk about getting down to the science, the tech adoption that everyone's had to go through to embrace these different platforms has, has been a necessity. Mm-hmm. And new behaviours have obviously emerged. But we talked, mentioned the, the deep social inequities and racial inequities that existed. But we're at a point, I mean, you're obviously in, uh, in, in Ann Arbor, but having just left New York through the work you were doing with Covenant House and also with Tom Kitt and what he's doing with the New York City Next. New York's opened again, Broadway's just reopened. And obviously it will never be the same as it was because, as you say, what you've done is with, has built um, broader awareness nationally and internationally. Now that Broadway has reopened and the city's sort of uh, vibrant and uh, probably feels busier than it's ever been since certainly the time I've been here, what do you think still needs to change um, in, in terms specifically around Broadway? And maybe you could reflect on your, or give me your perspective on just diversity and the oh. need for how we can use this period to maybe drive even more innovation and accelerate innovation and see it as, a, as an opportunity for positive change. There are a lot of things that came out of this time, of quarantine and pandemic. And I will say that Broadway and the industry itself has always kind of prided itself on 
it's inclusiveness, mm-hmm. right? But when all these things happened and the protests erupted and the, you know, killing of all, or, or taking of black lives and, and the industry was paralyzed. The, the industry had no statement. They had no, and slowly what you started to see was people started to speak their truths about things that had been done. And we started to see in that moment that this wasn't such a, you know, it wasn't as sparkly and inclusive and liberal as it as it was projected itself as, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And we started to see the inequities within our industry. And it was out there for all the world to see in a time where we could not smoke and mirror it because there was nowhere to go. <laughs> you couldn't mm-hmm. go keep doing your shows and people keep going because they paid for their tickets. No, it was a standstill. And it put a spotlight on this community. And what it revealed was what the inequities were, but it also revealed people's inability to know how to move these ideas, these protocols, these uh, initiatives forward. There was a kind of fragility around what to do. And in this moment, there were many organizations that were formed. And I was a part of two, and I'm still part of one. One was uh, Muse, which is Musicians United for Social Equity, which is all the Broadway composers, musical directors, orchestrators, arrangers, looking at creating a pipeline for uh, BIPOC artists into those roles because I think they recognize this. You get there because of who you know. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you're a Stephen Oremus, he started out as uh, an assistant to somebody else. And then if your pool is based on who you know and you have not created access, then it's just going to keep replicating the same yeah. people. And so there's been a real push to, to create pipelines. So that was one. The other is Black Theater United uh, with 19 founding members to really look at how we can make a change and how we can support our industry and hold it accountable to creating more access, uh, more opportunities, more safety for Black artists within our mm-hmm. industry. And as part of our last, our biggest uh, initiative was the New Deal, which we just finished a summit where we invited in Broadway, uh, the theater owners, the producers, the creatives, the unions, and over a period of three months, had meetings to come up with a new deal, which really is about what is the basic initiative that should be in place. And that was around equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and belonging training across Mm -hmm. our industry. And the commitment to that and what that looks like and providing access, making sure that there are no all white creative teams moving forward, you know, that there are no unpaid internships, just low hanging fruit, but things that people can start with and keep encouraging them and empowering them to move forward uh, with more initiatives so that we start to see a change that is deeply entrenched in our community and not just band aids uh, or front facing shows that really won't change anything. You're now in this amazing position where you've been appointed as a new chair for the Department of Musical Theatre at the University of Michigan um, in the School of Music and Drama and Dance. And you, therefore, you talk about protocols pipelines. You're now in a position to not just influence what's actually happening on Broadway, but you're dealing with a new generation of students, instilling in them the sort of the conviction, the belief and the will to drive for a better future. What are you taking from what you've done in the past and your rich experience 
and to help drive a better vision or a better future for these kids as they come out through higher education and prepare them to create an even better industry. It's interesting. I just started in September and one of the first things I did was to meet with all the students of color and say, what is it that you need? Mm-hmm. How can we support you? What is it that you that will help you to feel seen? What are the initiatives? How can we center our work in spaces of celebrating the diversity within our community as opposed to being a space of complaint? Which mm-hmm. I want to hear what's going on, but I also want to make sure that we're not creating a space that's just about what's not right, but empowering ourselves to make it better. Um, and I also met with all of my white students to, the following week to say, these initiatives around diversity usually fall on the backs of students of color or people of color, and they are not the people who create these policies. Mm -hmm. So what is your responsibility and how can I support you in learning the tools to be able to really stand in solidarity and be co-conspirators in changing the way in which we engage each other as in community? And then the third thing, a couple of students came to me and said, we want to do some kind of drive, some kind of fun drive for an institution. And I immediately called our head about Richard BIV and they connected me with the Covenant House in Detroit. And starting in October, we're going to do a month drive to, to get different things that they need, service, celebrating the diversity within our, our community, making sure that I am doing everything I can to provide the tools so that people can actually do the work. Because lots of times when we talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, and the new parts of that, which are accessibility and belonging, we all understand the speakies. We, do, we know what a microaggression is. We know, you know what unconscious bias is. But what we don't have a lot of is, how does that affect the work I do in a day-to-day basis in an artistic space? Which is already fit with this because it's in the work that we do. Mm. So I'm really interested in empowering faculty, empowering students to have the tools to, in an artistic space to integrate equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility, belonging. And so I've got some initiatives coming up that I'm going to be doing in December with for the students, and I've got some things coming up for the faculty that I'm going to be doing as well, um, because that's, that's who I am. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I am a Black person navigating academia, which is a predominantly white space here, I'm sure, in a historically Black college or university. And uh, I have to say that here at this university, I've been quite pleasantly surprised at how front-footed they are on these issues. Um, and I'm glad to be a part of that ongoing conversation, but more than a conversation, ongoing part of the change mm-hmm. that needs to happen. So that we really can create spaces where faculty feel empowered to navigate these tricky conversations and where students feel that they actually are seen and celebrated at work. Brilliant. Look forward to uh, hearing more and seeing the impact of the work that you're actually doing. Maybe you bring your students and do a performance next summer at Little Island on the Hudson. That could be good. Um, I've only got a few minutes left, so I'm going to just jump into a couple of the quickfire questions. Important one, what principles do you stand by? The one that lives in the biggest one this year is in grace. Grace, accountability, lifelong learning, faith, endurance, resilience. Particularly in the last year. Um, okay, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but looking back on it with the right decisions? Wow, I've made a few and then had to own them. Yeah. Yeah, they've been something where I have allowed my pain to lead something that I should have taken a step back from and found more joy. They've been situations, circumstances where I have 
trusted people to do the right thing. And I should have been much more front-footed about making sure people were in. So it's okay. been a balance of the two. Um, what's one problem worth solving? Oh, God. So many. I would say racing America, but that's just so huge. But I feel like this idea around how we do create spaces of belonging. Mm. That's a challenge in the current uh, political and social environment in the US, <laughs> leaving aside race. What would your advice be to someone that's just about to graduate, maybe that's in your school that uh, has got a, an amazing dream, goal, ambition, similar to what you had, but has been told, forget it, it's impossible? Don't let anybody tell you it's impossible. I'm living proof, you know, people who told me no, whereas other people who told me yes. And you have to, that little, and I had this conversation yesterday, that little devil will always sit on your shoulder telling mm-hmm. you what you can do. And you can embrace that little devil by saying, that may be true, but I'm still going to do it. Or you can tell the devil, take a back seat. I know you have to be here in the space, but you're going to be in the back. They're not going to drive the car. Um, you have to believe this. You have to believe that you were put on this earth to do something that no one else was able, is able to do in the way that you do it, and that there's a road that is over your own. It may not be what you think, but you go out there and you keep going at it until your like sweet spot reveals itself. But you only know by getting out there and doing it. Right? Great advice. Final questions. Um, during lockdown, we all watched probably too many sort of series or documentaries. Is there anything that you think that people might have missed that they should see? I loved, uh, there was a documentary on that uh, African-American music festival that happened in Harlem that happened the same year as um, what's, Woodstock. And, Woodstock, yeah. Yeah, and it was filmed over the seven-day period and never seen, and now it's out there. I think something to soul. It's it's. Ooh. Absolutely brilliant. I loved uh, Left Crab's Country was one of the shows that I watched. Oh, yeah. um, the Crow. I love, uh, there's so many things that I've watched that I now binge on and there's, I can't even remember what they were, but there were, there were certain things that I watched at Left Crab's Country and there's another one over there. Oh, Motherland. I love things to deal with the witches and how history has changed in some way. Those are kind of things that I love to watch. Documentaries, there was one on PBS about Black mm-hmm. women with Cicely Tyson and Diane Carroll and, and Nina Simone. And I love those kinds of things. There was one on Twilight Dark. I think it's great performances. Okay, well, that's good. And our final question is, uh, who should we interview next? I would say someone like Shelley Williams, who is another fellow founder of Black Theatre United, but she's a director. We did rent together many years ago, but she's right on the cusp of a whole different world, but we're going a whole different way. And just put out a book on for children on history of African-Americans in this country. She's a director that has three shows coming down the pipeline that will put her out in the world in a different way. Um, a talented performer, really interesting human being. Okay, that sounds wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you very much. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.